Welcome to CYC Podcast Discussions on Child and Youth Care, episode number 158. I'm Wolfgang Vashon. One of the themes that is ever-present on this podcast is how institutional oppression impacts the lives of young people we work with. We've discussed racism, homophobia, transphobia, misogyny, ableism, and other structural systemic oppressions on children, youth, and families. We have paid much less attention to how these same factors impact those who work in CYC, how they are embedded in what and how we teach, or the ways they manifest in the places that we work. These, of course, cannot be separated. The same systems that oppress those we work with oppress many, indeed, if not all, who work within. Today, I'm speaking with two people to help us understand these interwoven realities. My guests are Juanita Steven and Peter Mpunsa. Juanita Steven is co-founder of the Child and Youth Care Alliance for Racial Equity, otherwise known as CARE. She has worked with young people in numerous capacities over the years and also teaches CYC. After completing her diploma, undergrad, and master's in child and youth care, Juanita is currently doing her PhD in gender, feminist, and women's studies. Peter Rampunza is a professor at Sheridan College in the Child and Youth Care Program, and he too has done practice with young people as well as working in management and helped develop policy for various child welfare agencies. Much of Peter's work, like Juanita's, focuses on anti-oppressive and anti-racist theory and practice. Peter is also currently doing his PhD at York University in the School of Social Work. Thank you both so much for joining me today. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks for having us. Uh, let's start, um, and maybe we could start with you, Juanita. Uh, uh, letting us know what exactly the Child and Youth Care Alliance for Racial Equity is. Sure. Um, so CARE is a community-based group of IBPOC folks, so Indigenous, Black, uh, and people of color who are connected to child and youth care or to youth work kind of more broadly. We started almost exactly two years ago after the last provincial CYC conference. Um, and we were brought together, uh, we brought together CYC practitioners, educators, students, um, and young people who were committed to addressing some of those inequities that you mentioned in child and youth care. Um, it was meant to build on lots of the conversations and work that we had been doing separately on our own, in our communities, um, and with our colleagues who were also seeing um, the erasures, the injustices, and the overall problematic nature um, of those those things that you ha had been just mentioning um, that were happening in child and youth care. And since then, we've expanded beyond CYC, strictly speaking, to include work with young people um, and their families more generally. So um, we are part advocacy, part research. Um, part of it is working with organizations in service of some of these goals. It's part community building, but it all centers on the folks who are directly impacted impacted by the injustices in youth services on, on the delivery end of services, on the receiving end. Um, and we start from the, from the point of race, racial inequity, um, but we're always considering all of the other political identities that are subject to inequitable access and experiences within the field. Can I tell you how excited I was when I, when I, when I found out that, that, that care has started? Um, and, uh, you know, it's a bit shocking that it took this long. Um, 
because the, these these topics have been um, necessary to be talking about um, for so long. I mean, you, you talked a little bit about um, the erasures um, of and and injustices in child and youth care. How do you see? Um, let's start where where you start with the racial inequity. How do you see that manifesting in child and youth care? And so, um, you know, one of the one of the ways, Wolfgang, that um, is an obvious example of the way the racial inequity gets manifested is uh, just just visually what we see in the field. Um, what we what we are seeing, for instance, in education is that um, the populations or the individuals that are put up in front of students and teaching uh, care, teaching concepts of care, oftentimes don't reflect number one the students that are in the classroom or number two, the populations that they then go out to serve. Um, and, you know, within equity conversations, representation is one of the, uh, one of the pillars uh, that we oftentimes talk about because we need to make sure that um, the individuals that are um, sort of uh, informing the practice that gets delivered are reflective of those that are receiving those services. Absolutely. And, and how do you think that that does that? How does... How does seeing people in front of the classroom um, who are similar to students, be they, um, you know, people of color, indigenous faculty, um, people with various levels of, of abilities and, and disabilities, um, people identify as, as queer or trans, what does that do for those students and then ultimately for the, those people we work with? Well, I, I think that um, when you when you are starting to like in, in terms of pre-service education, when you're in the classroom and you're learning about the work that we are um, supposed to be doing, and we learn who is going to be the recipients of that work, the beneficiaries of that work, um, we we kind of construct this idea of who. Uh, is in need of care and who it is that provides care. Mm -hmm. And if the only folks who are ever talking about and teaching about who needs care um, are look a certain way, um, then they start to be removed from, there, there becomes this kind of split in who needs care, who can provide care, who is the, the givers of help and who are the recipients of help. And that, that split, that kind of dichotomy uh, starts right in that classroom and without even um, getting into the content of what's actually represented in the curriculum, which is an additional layer on top of that, um, we start to set up this idea of who it is that um, is actually in the position to be a carer, to be a nurturer, to make the decisions about who is in, you know, in need of protection, to use like language from the field. It already kind of sets up the, the optics of who's on which side of that power dynamic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the effective tools of, of inequity is to uh, strip the value of, of individuals. Um, and, and so, you know, based on what Juanita is saying, we effectively unconsciously do that in the classroom when we're presenting uh, particular images of helper versus helpy. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that I've, I've been thinking about the past couple few years is you know, who have been, and I'll, I'll talk about it, the Canadian context in particular, who have been the hired caregivers. And, his, and and there's a long history in Canada, certainly, of, you know, importing 
um, caregivers from from the Caribbean, for example, or from the Philippines and other places. And and I I wonder what how that um, informs the conversation about who goes into care into the, the, the care field and then what happens when people, um, the, the professors are predominantly white, for example, predominantly female, for example. Um, any thoughts on that, looking at that sort of historical element of, of who is paid to care for children and youth? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're pulling on the historical um, element, Wolfgang, because I don't think we can really sort of understand uh, the nature of helping within the Canadian context without considering the historical, uh, particularly for those of us in child and, and, and youth care. There's a, there's a relationship to um, sort of the, the, the foundations of care, uh, children and youth, and those that were called upon to care for, for children and youth. And so... Um, you know, for, for one, I think what it does for students in, in, the, in the classroom is it, um, it sort of allows them to, to, to challenge their ideas of, of normal and unnormal. Um, and so when you have representatives um, that reflect the client population who are then in the classroom teaching what care should look like, you're actively challenging the ideas um, that students are going to be carrying with them into the field around, you know, um, who they are in the care profession and number one, who and number two, who they're supposed to care for in the care profession. And then um, that then that gets reinforced further when there is um, this hierarchy of who is doing the caring versus who decides what care is. So in the classroom, we have predominantly white professors who are teaching particular theories and notions of care. And then the direct service practitioners um, look very different than that. We have much more diversity kind of in that direct service who's being hired to do the caring. And then in the education and in the management, it, it looks very different. Um, who's deciding what that care ought to be. Mm-hmm. I, I know, Juanita, that, that part of your... PhD work is looking at at care and looking at history of care and, and certainly in, in child and youth care there has been all there's been little published about sort of care care theory ethics of care um, and to the best of my knowledge almost nothing has come from um, indigenous or there is a little bit of indigenous theorizing about care um, and almost nothing from from black or other or people of color and and I know that some of your own work has to do with these constructions of care how might introducing other perspectives of care um, help shape and 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 uh, benefit if that's the right word child and youth care uh, well, you should probably ask me in three years. When some, some <laughs> okay, it's, a, it's a date one. You know, we got it. We're, it's, it's, it's booked. <laughs> um, but I, I think that, I mean, my interest in um, in looking at that, because largely that's kind of the, the framework that I'm entering my own research um, for my doctoral work is is kind of re, rethinking 
how we enter um, into conceptualizing notions of care. And just like you said, um, moving away from or introducing additional perspectives um, that aren't strictly Eurocentric and that aren't um, expanding upon Eurocentric notions of care and that aren't responding to Eurocentric notions of care. Um, I'm hoping to to kind of think through what it would mean for our field and 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 really to explore how it might shift our field within Canada um, to think about entering notions of care from a different perspective. Um, and I know that that's, that's kind of vague, um, but that's, that's really where I'm at with it, is just opening up this question of what, what might it actually do to our field? What might it do to those who enact care? What might it do um, in the classroom? What might it do for the families and the young people who are, who are engaged with child and youth care services to have um, to have care practitioners who aren't starting from um, the the kind of narrow models of care that we're working with right now. So it's it's kind of a question that's open that I'm hoping to explore over the next few years. Nice, great, great. I, I love the question. I, I I wonder if if either of you are. A, um, are comfortable or, or feel prepared or, or could speak to how um, how we how we how current conceptions of care might be harmful in child and youth care um, we've been focused a lot on the education um, element and certainly we can stay there if, if you'd like and I'm also thinking about the workplace as well yeah um, you know uh, in, in even in responding to this particular question, I'm, I'm, I'm sensitive of what it means to um, unpack some of the uh, traditional historical notions of, of, of care, even in this conversation we're about to have right now, this comment I'm about to make. But, you know, for me, one of the ones, uh, one of the concept concepts in, in care that I've um, sort of started to interrogate a little bit more is the notion that our practice is um, sort of solely based upon uh, moments, right? Uh, we spend a lot of uh, time talking about the concept of moments and, 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 and you know, really engaging in relational practice. Um, and, and I find we spend a lot of time on that without considering the structural implications and relationships up upon those moments. Um, and so I've had conversations in the field to try to get people to open up their thinking a little bit more to consider how the historical impacts the contemporary and how the historical impacts even our ideas of what makes up uh, a therapeutic moment. Um, because when you're working with, you know, individuals, um, you know, IBPOC individuals or individuals that have uh, historically been mistreated through systems, it's hard to engage in moments without considering considering the historical mistrust that um, really um, challenges our ability to create therapeutic um, um, outcomes. Absolutely, you know, I think when we when we trace back the the idea of moments, I think a lot of that comes from uh, you know Tom Garfat's work and, and based in this notion of phenomenology and and exploring the you know the, the phenomena of particular moments and what that means which of course has a long uh, a very particular eurocentric history to um to put it to put it mildly but phenomenology is a a, a very 
singular stream, which which really seems to have been taken up with, you know, I would say, a philosophically in many cases without really understanding sort of what what's coming out of that that long long stream and so if we were to move away from moments as a as a framework for our our thinking and our working do either of you have ideas of what what other um, approaches or conceptions might um, be appropriate or generative you know um I'll say Wolfgang, this isn't fully thought out yet. But okay, what okay, I'm, I'm going off script. I know. Yeah, <laughs> no, no, that's okay. That's okay. But what what immediately jumps to my mind, and it is something I've sort of thought about a little bit, is the idea of um, sort of intergenerational continuum, mm-hmm. right? Um, that um, this this idea of intergenerational continuum number one, calls into being the helper and their whole intergenerational continuum. And so it's not just the focus on the client being served, but it's also about the the, the, the sort of historical relationship that the helper has with that client moving forward. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really like that. So really bringing back this idea of, uh, you know, community community embedded in history and and certainly you know we seem quite comfortable and and i wonder what your thoughts are on this we seem quite comfortable considering or more comfortable i should say considering that when we think about trauma um and say okay there's intergenerational trauma we seem less comfortable in that when we think about care and 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 practices of care uh, there there seems to be a a willingness uh, and, and again correct me if you see it differently there seems to be a willingness of pathologizing the intergenerational but not the the the, the caring or the generative of the intergenerational right well said yeah mm. and and i think that it's important just to to note that like that's always been happening like mm. in certain communities this this these have always been the practices of care it is embedded in the like the fabric of many cultures uh, in many places around the world and and throughout like as those communities move and as those cultures move throughout the world they they bring them with them um, i just think about even growing up on my street my mother was a block parent, which was like, you know, which was um, kind of a more formalized way of just taking care of the community um, that was literally an open door policy to to caring for each other when my grandmother was in the house and she would open up, right? Like there are there are many ways that um, like there is an, um, an inter- intergenerational and, and a community um, focused um, way of caring that isn't um that isn't institutionalized that isn't um isn't brought into kind of formal institutions but is always happening and is ever present and continues to to happen now and there's a lot of strength in that absolutely and if i may add is also mutually beneficial you know um it, it has become more concerning for me um the lack of attention that is paid to um, the the sort of the the everyday nuance of the caring work, and so when we think about shifting paradigms in care. It's also about considering the you know um, mutual benefits that both the care and 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 that those receiving care um, can receive. Absolutely, absolutely. So it's um it's funny, but uh, one of my 
former mentors in this field, um, when I started, uh, had one time plugged the idea in my mind that if, uh, you know, if our sector, if, if I am doing really good work, then I should be out of a job in, in about four or five years. <laughs> Uh, and, and at the time I didn't really sort of get what he was saying. I mean, I had just dedicated, you know, four years of my life to studying, you know, <laughs> uh, to be, to be working in the, in the social service sector, but it's after I got into the work and I got into the nature of the work and I got into what drives our everyday sort of, um, responsibilities, I realized that what he meant was if we were doing a good job as a sector, if we were really prioritizing the well-being of young people, then this dependency around an economy for young people would not be there. And I think that's the kind of uh, change, the kind of paradigm shift that um, you know I, 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 I think we're we're looking for. Yeah, absolutely. I, you, know, the, you know, this idea of the child welfare industry. Um, and the implications for that is something that I think uh, we as a field in child and youth care haven't really grappled with as much as we as we need to and, and how that's become quite career um, driven for for many people. And what are the implications of that? You know, you've we've, we've been talking about care and, and inequity, and I'm wondering how do we as a field address these factors? Are, do you have any thoughts on, on moving and certainly creating the Child and Youth Care Alliance for Racial Equity is an um, amazing first step in that? Are there other steps that we can be taking? Yeah, so, um, so I, I have, a, I have a, a couple of thoughts around that. Um, and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sort of ask one of you to, to, to add to it as well. You know, I think, first of all, there's some things we want to acknowledge right up front before we start to think about responses. Mm -hmm. um, and some of those have come out already in what we've, we've, we've talked about. But also, I think it's about clearly naming what has been the, the field's position around responding to these issues. And so um, in our, in our uh, earlier sort of preparation for this, we kind of synthesized it around a couple of terms. Um, there's a definite uh, aversion in the field to want to want to tackle these kinds of issues. Um, there's uh, a definite sort of uh, acceptance of it, of sort of the status quo uh, practice that we provide and, and, and uh, unwillingness to want to change. Um, and then there's also the sort of position of avoidance, just, just complete um, unconscious um, avoidance of, of the issues that we're here talking about. And so I think it's important to acknowledge that those are the typical responses we receive. Also, um, I think it's also important to acknowledge that there has, uh, there, there's a clear dynamic that plays out obviously between how child and youth care workers are educated and what gets delivered in the workplace. Um, you know, we threw out the term um, a, a, a pipeline. There's sort of like a pipeline there between education and the workplace. And if the field wants to really shake things up and change the way we're doing practice, we want to clearly acknowledge that pipeline. And, and what, what pipeline in particular are you talking about here, Peter? Um, that is when we see that when there's a lack of, for instance, critical education happening in, in the classroom, 
then there will be a clear uh, lack of critical practice happening in the field. I think we oftentimes disconnect those realities, um, and it's about us calling those realities back up. Absolutely. And just to to kind of build on that, I think that um, that pipeline is um, one example of how the responsibility for change in the field gets localized at the individual level. Mm. So by the time we have practitioners who are out in the field who are um, really enacting what they've been taught uh, in school and and doing that type of work that's really kind of focused on the individual and it's about certain models of care and it's often reproducing these these particular injustices that we've um, kind of uh, spoken about, um, the onus then gets put on that individual to make changes in their own individual practice. Um, And what we really need to be doing is thinking about what are the systems that are setting up the context for that sort of work to happen. What's happening in terms of the education that, um, like that pre-service education that's happening for for practitioners, what is embedded in the curriculum? What are the ideologies that are being that they're being indoctrinated with, that they're being taught? Then thinking about what is happening in each of those sectors that they're going to move into. If I'm working in the child welfare system, what are the um, like what are the ideologies that are embedded in that idea of what care is that they are asked to reproduce? What's happening in the education system? What's happening in healthcare? What's happening in residential care? What's happening um, in terms of funding models, which programs get funding, which programs get particular types of funding to do particular types of programming in particular communities, right? We we don't need any more basketball programs to engage black youth. Or pizza parties. Or pizza parties, <laughs> right? So when we think about, like, if we pull back and look at these structural and institutional um, shifts that need to happen, um, before we can, or or concurrently, perhaps, but to a larger tegre- degree than what we are expecting um, in terms of changes at the individual practitioner level, um, I, I think that, that that's really a conversation that needs to be happening with um, a little more uh, vigor. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And how might we contribute to that conversation today? How more can we contribute to that conversation today? <laughs> I, I think it's uh, number one, uh, creating spaces uh, like this, if I may say, the Wolf Gang, for us to trouble notions of, of care. Mm-hmm. I think it's also about moving, uh, you know, those who do the troubling. I think it needs to look different. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it doesn't always have to look like Juanita and I. Um, and I think the vigor that we're calling upon can only be. Uh, sort of manifested when we move care conversations outside of just racialized bodies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I and I also think that part of it is um, to really resist the urge to turn these kind of conversations or um, into fads or to risk. Uh, resist the urge to just lean into buzzwords as they come up um, as kind of passing uh, moments um, of a kind of attention. For example, we uh, the word intersectionality came into po- uh, popular discourse, came into academic discourse, moved into 
to the field and showed up on uh, every single uh, like syllabus, every single conference presentation, um, because it was an important thing for us to consider. We we had been looking at race separate from sexuality, separate from gender, separate from ability. Um, and then Kimberly Crenshaw gave us language to be able to recognize what had always been um, the 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 reality that if you are gendered and raced in a particular way, you are going to experience things in, in a unique way, right? Um, and so that started to be part of the, the discourse, but it, it was kind of popularized. Um, and, and I think that um, when we popularize things and they become buzzwords, then they start to lose really the... Um, they, they start to lose kind of the weight of, of why it became, why someone had to put language to it. And it's easy for it to just become a thing that we say, that we check off. It becomes, de um, decolonization has happened in the same word, uh, sorry, in the same way. Anti-oppression, Anti yeah, yeah, has happened in that same way. And so I think that it's really important for us to, w once we have acknowledged either individually or, or kind of at an organizational or systemic level that, um, we're willing to take on um, what it means to really include an intersectional uh, perspective into our service delivery or to really decolonize education, um, what it really means to do the work of anti-oppression. Like, what does that mean? It needs to become an integral part of every aspect of service delivery. It has to become a part of how we think about funding models. It has to become a part of how we think about hiring practices. It has to become a part of how we think about program evaluation. All of those have to be embedded within that same thought pattern. It can't just be, you know, in one aspect of service delivery. That that doesn't do it. That doesn't make the shifts that we need for a, like a permanent move towards equitable services absolutely absolutely um and i and i think you know what what the project of care is doing is really um a allowing those core conversations w which have existed um around the periphery for for many many years um and i and i think it's uh, uh it's a I don't know if this is the right word, but perhaps forcing it to to be a bit more apparent. To to go back to your points, Peter, around the aversion, um, the acceptance of the status quo, and the, and the avoidance of the issues, um, and and how that is is constantly present, um, and and so you know what what you're saying, you know, and what what care has been doing is really um, requiring child and youth care. I think with with a lot of discomfort and a, la a lack a real lack of grace in many times uh, from my perspective, um, forcing us in child and youth care to to really confront these these issues. Um, as we start to move towards closing, um, you know, we had a, we had a question here around around research, and I know that CARE is doing research. I didn't know if if we want to talk a little bit about that at this point in time, although we could certainly have um, you know other people who are doing the research on it at a later date, another podcast, or if there's something else that you want to talk about regarding um, uh, this this topic in general that that we haven't gotten to yet. 
Yeah, so so Wolfgang, really briefly, um, you know, when CARES started out, we uh, acknowledged um, from the beginning that uh, research had to be a component of um, the, the conversations, that had to be a component of, of the advocacy or whatever idea of change that we had. And so uh, within CARE, we've been able to uh, strike up a, a research committee um, that is uh, currently led by uh, Jaspreet Ball. Uh, and uh, and so J Jasper is going to be one of the presenters uh, at the OECYC conference uh, in the upcoming weeks. Um, and in that presentation, we will be uh, unraveling uh, a number of uh, recommendations that we have for the field that that has come out of conversations we've been able to have with the community. Yeah, I'm really I'm I'm looking forward to to Jasper's work and the, and the whole committee's work and. Um, you know, great, great segue for those of you who are going to be at the Ontario Association of Child and Youth Care Conference in, in Peterborough um, at the beginning of, of June. Um, there will be Peter and Juanita will be presenting along with um, m several other members of, of CARE will also be presenting. Um, and I think I think it's it, I think it's wonderful and imperative that you're naming research as an explicit agenda. I think uh, that's another area that we in child and youth care have not always embraced as much as we we could. I think, and so embedding that within your um, structure and making it integral to to the work, I think, is a was a, a really nice choice. As as we wrap up two things I want to ask anything else you want to touch on before we leave and also for people who want to connect with you I know you're an Ontario based organization we have listeners from around the world people who want to connect with you be they in Ontario or elsewhere how can they and where can they find care um, thankfully the internet has made this a very small world so uh, <laughs> you can find us uh, we our email address um, if you just if anyone wanted to um, reach out directly is the care alliance at gmail.com um, we are also on facebook and twitter on facebook um, fb.me forward slash equity in cyc and on twitter we're at equity in cyc and i'll post all of those if if you don't mind on the um on the homepage of the podcast so people can just link right through if that's okay with the two of you. That would be great. Yeah, absolutely. Anything else before we say goodbye? Uh, no, Wolfgang, thank you for the opportunity. You know, um, as much as uh, these conversations need to be had, um, it's oftentimes hard to find those spaces and CARE is actively uh, trying to uh, define and find those spaces. And so we want to thank you for the opportunity to come online today um, and, and, and share with you the work that we've been, we've been doing so far. Yeah, absolutely. We appreciate the opportunity to have the, the conversation with you and, and hope that it'll generate and encourage and, and feed into the conversations that are already happening other places. And, and we're looking forward to having some of those conversations with folks moving forward. Absolutely. And I, and I'm, I'm thrilled that the two of you were, were able to come on and, and I, um, Hopefully we can have many more conversations with, with CARE. Heck, we could do like a regular CARE podcast on an alternate, alternate Wednesday on a regular basis if you have the, if you have the time and energy. I got, I got the space and the motivation. Um, uh, and, I, and I also want to say that, you know, as somebody who, who, um, who talks to a lot of white practitioners, um, 
you know, th some of these conversations are um, with much discomfort and much stumbling around. Some of these conversations are, are, are happening in, um, in other spaces and certainly in faculty meetings as well. Um, these, these conversations are happening not as much as they need to be, absolutely, and um, the change isn't happening as, as much as it needs to be. Um, although, you know, I, I have hope. I have hope for, for all of us, and I have appreciation for the work that you're doing and for all of the people uh, in care and, and elsewhere who are really forcing these, these conversations because, as you said, uh, Peter, you know, it's a certain... A certain body that tends to be forcing these conversations, pushing these conversations, and and you risk, um, you know, employment ostracization, social isolation, you know, um, marks all those things to do this work. And so I I, I want to say how much I appreciate that the two of you, your work, and the rest of the care collective, and all those people individually working. So thank you. Thanks, Thank Wolfgang. You. Thank you. All right. We will talk again soon, I hope. Bye-bye for now. Thanks. Take care.